dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in god's country crops far as i can see the headlights on both ends of my day this country Well, welcome, folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer Latsky, and I'm joined by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hi, Jenny. Well, how's your, uh, how's your week been? How are things around the Hacienda? Or oh, it's, have it's we, going. Have we decided on a name for the Scott Ranch? Is it the ranch or the Hacienda or the... The Ponderosa. I, I keep telling you, I'm partial to Scott Ponderosa. I don't know. <laughs> don't know. <laughs> don't have that much brain space to think about it. It's just our place. <laughs> well, now let's see. Uh, you guys are down. Um, you've got all the, the 4-H animals are off to their final rewards, right? Yeah, the pig went to Woodward on September 1st, and we picked what remained of the pig up on September I don't know, 10th or 11th. I don't remember what day it was, but she's in the freezer now. Good, good, good. That was a, a quite a thing to find a place to take your, your pig, uh, just to find a spot, wasn't it? Yeah, I called, I don't know how many places to, to find a spot for her, and they were all booked out May, June, July of 2021. So I was surprised they had a spot for her, and been so far been really pleased with what they sent back and it's been really good all right gotta have that question do the boys know what they're eating yeah they know <laughs> how are they taking it sean's taking it better than he did last year and last year he was a little hesitant to eat his pig because he liked that one a lot more than this one so it's is what it is you know, I liked what Miranda Lambert said one time. She said, sometimes there are animals that feed our souls and there are animals that feed our spirits. There are animals that feed our spirits and animals that feed our stomachs, something along those lines. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, it's always one of those things that you just, it, it's, a, it's a time to grow up, you yeah. know? Well, and he was more broke up about the goat which he wasn't out there that much with the goat. I mean, enough to get a halter broken, you know, hang out with it a little bit, but he bawled for the goat when the goat had to go at the fair. And I'm like, Billy, dude, what's the problem? Goats <laughs> are fluffier and softer. Yeah. I honestly think there's a tactile thing with anim- um, people and animals. The softer the animal, the more our softer our feelings are towards the animal. Well, yeah, but the pigs have such a big personality compared to the goats the goats have no personality all they do is holler at you you know feed me and then I'm stupid and I'm going to dump all my feet over that's just the goats are just that way <laughs> and the pigs are the pigs will come when you call them they'll you know take marshmallows out of your hand and you talk to them and they'll grunt at you so they're just different <laughs> are you sure you aren't carrying over some bias from your goat tying days <laughs> I didn't tie goats. I never did. (laughs) But we did have goats at our house 
that my sister tied and the one was in love with my horse she wherever my horse went Ophelia went and it was love at first sight for the goat apparently <laughs> mom didn't feel the same way because the goat would end up on the back step <laughs> eating dog food <laughs> so <laughs> you know I tell you what folks some people from the outside look at what we do and and they think it's horrible but again it's a growing up part of life understanding that there is a circle there literally is a circle and everything has a purpose and sometimes you know the name of what you're eating <laughs> yeah sometimes it's just that way i remember being a kid and we always had a favorite cow out in the pasture you know mine was milkshake she was a big Hereford cow that had a big bag that would, her bag would sway when she walked. So it was milkshake. And <laughs> every year you'd look at the calves and you'd find your favorite calf. And then when they were gone, it was not a good feeling, but you got over it. Yep. It happened every year. Well, good luck to all those 4-H families out there that are experiencing the, uh, the knowledge of, you know, who's here in your freezer. It's, it's not a, a scene out of Dexter, people. It's just the way we do things out here. Uh, let's see what else is going on in the world. Did I tell you, I, um, I, I got to expand my horizons on Saturday, Kayleen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So our friend Greg Akagi, who is the Ag Director for WIBW and the Kansas Ag Network, had called me up. And he said, hey, we're still going to do the, the state fair um, debate that we always do, except the state fair isn't going on this year. So we're going to do it virtually. And would you be one of this, the questioners for uh, Congressman Marshall, Roger Marshall, and uh, State Senator Barbara Bollier, who are vying to fill Senator Pat Roberts' seat? And uh, I said, well, yeah, sure, I, I, I can do that. Um, you know, what, what exactly do I have to do? <laughs> he said, just ask questions on agriculture. I said, well, I think I can do that. It was an experience, Kayleen. Um, I'm sure did the, all the technology work as it was intended to work? <laughs> it did. It was a different platform. They didn't do it over Zoom. Uh, but they, they had a different platform that allowed them to have a more studio experience. And so myself and three other questioners, we were in our home offices and uh, Dr. Um, Dr. Marshall and Dr. Bollier were in the studio with Greg Akagi, socially distanced. They were um, about six feet apart, both of their microphones from each other and then from Greg. And uh, you could watch them get on um, and, and test the equipment and everything. And everybody wore masks until it was time to, to have the debate. And then masks came off. Um, I got to say, I'm not a policy wonk. I, I mean, I, I pay attention to politics we, enough to have conversations about the issues of the day. I, obviously, I, I pay attention to stuff because we have to, to we have to understand what's going on out there for our, our farmers and ranchers um but it's a whole other thing to know that you're asking questions on behalf of farmers and ranchers that can't be there and the the journalist in me Kayleen wanted to do follow-up questions I I wanted to come back and go well now 
you know, let's do some live fact checking and let's, you know, I'd like you to really answer the question, sir. I'd really like you to, to finish answering the question, ma'am, and, and that sort of thing. None, you don't have time for any of that. There is no follow-up question in this debate format. And so it was eye-opening. And I, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I hope I did a good job. I hope uh, people got to understand what the candidates' positions were and, and they were put on record. Um, it was tough because it was the day after, less than, less than 12 hours after we learned that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed away. And so obviously that was one of the major questions. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a really interesting experience, Gaylene. Highly recommend it. We should have you do that next year. Um, no, you wouldn't, wouldn't be <laughs> anything worth a dang if I did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we would be remiss if we didn't mention, you know, our, our thoughts go out to the family of Justice um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on her loss. Uh, today, no. they, they had her lying in, in um, repose at the Supreme Court, and she will be lying in state in the Capitol. And the first female to do so lie in state, not just a, it, it's a, there's a separate designation, but um, incredible life, just an incredible yeah. life, Kayleen. I saw the picture of the black Kitalfa. material. Yeah, everything on her seat at the, the Supreme Court. That was pretty neat to see that they still do something like that. You know, for all of her five feet, so many inches, she was a powerful voice for women. You know, I don't know. You probably don't remember a lot about when Sandra Day O'Connor, um, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, was, was um, named to the bench. Uh, I remember knowing that it was incredible that Reagan had had um, gotten a, a first female on the bench with her. Yeah. And then I remember being a young girl in high school when um, Justice Ginsburg, um, she was appointed to the, the, the Supreme Court. And I remember thinking, these are women that use their brains and they think things through. You know, that's the point of a justice is to be that impartial, well-thought and reasoned voice of, you know, let's look at both sides of the issue and let's make a decision that's going to have precedent. Let's have a decision that follows the Constitution, a decision that if there is a, a debate between the U.S. public and Capitol Hill and the president, Supreme Court, they are the, the law of the land. I always thought it was amazing that two women were able to put be on that on that panel and now we have um more justice sotomayor and um justice kegel <laughs> i can't remember her last name uh bless their hearts but we have more um i just liked her because she was she was gutsy she was broad yeah i saw earlier this week you know after she had passed away that the student newspaper at Oklahoma State had a story about how back at the beginning of her law career, maybe it was she was even a justice, I'm not real sure, but in Oklahoma, there was a point in time that the law said that females could buy alcohol at age 18 and males had to wait until 21 to buy it. And there was a lot of the bars and stuff in Stillwater that were not very happy about this and they discussed it and tried to have you know 
civil lawsuit, whatever. I don't know for sure. It's been a week since I read it and I didn't retain it, but it was pretty neat to see that she, you know, had something to do with a law like that in, in Oklahoma. Not many people understand that much of the change that she made in women's lives and women's rights actually came by um, bringing forth cases that had to do with laws that were applied to men that also affected women. Yeah. Um, And that was an incredibly smart thing on her part to do in the 70s and the 80s um, because it was easier to just dismiss Oh, it's, it's just, you know, it's just a woman's issue. But when it affected a man, then they listened. And by, by having those, those cases, they set precedent so that women were also granted the same rights as well. So um, rest easy, ma'am. I hope you enjoy, um, hope you enjoy uh, opera with uh, Justice um, Alito. Um, up in heaven. I think that was one of the sweetest things I ever knew. You know, he was a staunch, staunch conservative and she was middle of the road liberal, but they were able to make it work as, as a friendship and as co or as justices on the Supreme court. That was mm-hmm. a lot of respect there. Yeah. Well, Folks, it's been a week. I tell you, it has. And uh, sure hope that that everything's going good for you out there. Drop us a line at hpjtalk at hpj.com and let us know or call us at 1-800-452-7171. Hey, folks, and do us a favor and head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and go ahead and leave us a review. This week's episode will bring you stories you might have missed in the September 21st print edition. And I'll bring the latest on the gray markets and we'll have some final thoughts. Alta Seeds brings you this week's episode. Alta debuted its iGrowth sorghum line in the U.S. market in its first-ever Sorghum Frontiers virtual field day. iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide-tolerant sorghum that's commercially available in the U.S. market, enabling pre- or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to register for the second Sorghum Frontiers virtual field day to further showcase iGrowth at hpj.com sorghumfrontiers. Learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm. Well, hey, folks, it is officially fall. So uh, if even though it's hot outside, I and Kayleen will no longer uh, give you heck if you have a little bit of pumpkin spice in that coffee. Um, thanks for, for filling up that cup and riding with us here on HPJ Talk. This week's cover story is by Jenny, composite cattle coming to a feed bunk near you. The Plain States have been an ideal location for many dairies to relocate in the last two decades, and a number of the dairy cows continue to grow each year. Because of the increased presence in the areas, the state's feedlots have noticed the growing opportunities to feed out dairy calves. These composite calves are the result of scientific advancement since the dairy herdsmen are now able to obtain sex semen to produce the replacements for their herds or send out the other calves to feed out wherever they need to. 
in recent years, beef bulls have been used to produce the remaining calves that are eventually fed out in the feedlots. Yeah, Kayleen, this is something that uh, we've only, we've always been able to use beef bulls on dairy cows. This is nothing new. However, with the advancement in genomics in, in the beef breeds, we now know more about the beef sires that are out there. And dairymen have figured out that they can take the bottom three quarters or one half of their herd as far as production. And they could breed those, those ladies or those females to uh, beef bulls, beef sires. And that way um, they don't have so many replacement females that have to find a place in the herd pushing out older cows that are in production. Not only that, they are starting to figure out that if they use the right bull breeding or the right bull genetics on these uh, dairy cows, they can actually come up with a composite or a crossbred animal that'll perform just like a beef animal in the feedlot. Uh, you took uh, animal science classes. You know that uh, the dairy calves are actually a, a very tender meat. Um, this is something I, I kind of had in the back of my head, but when I was talking with Tom Jones out at, at uh, High Plains Feeders, he said that honestly, uh, young dairy cows or young dairy calves, steers or heifers fed out on grain, have actually tendered to scores that are much, much more tender than um, beef breeds. Had no idea. <laughs> yeah. And so um, these new composite calves, if they can get the right breeding figured out, uh, you're going to start seeing a little bit more of a market for them and more of a place for them. And there's, there's some in the cow-calf industry that say, well, that displaces some of our own cattle in the feedlots. However, you have to think there were already going to be dairy calves in the feedlots. You know, they were probably going to be dairy on dairy. You still have to have cows having calves in order to have a dairy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, what's also bringing rise to this is the fact that we have a lot of large dairies that have relocated, like like you said in the in the intro, they've relocated to Kansas and Texas and and parts of the High Plains, and you're talking 160,000 or so calves that need to find a place in a feedlot. So it's it's worth some thought in the industry to get this right. We definitely want to get this right in order so that we don't mess up the back end on the meat side. You know, the last thing we want to do is tinker with our meat demand. And so by figuring out the breeding at one end, they can have a better dining experience on the other, Kayleen. Yeah, it sounds like they, they're getting a system developed that can be really helpful for that segment of the market. And I got to say, having gone out there and taken photos, they look like beef cattle. You don't yeah. really see a lot of dairy in them. I was expecting to see a lot of dairy, uh, you know, big hip bones and, and the like, and they pretty much look like a, a beef <laughs> on beef calf. So they're yeah, getting my, better. When my husband worked at a feed yard over by Cimarron, I went to take pictures for something and there was pin upon pin of pin of black and white steers that they were feeding out. And they looked very similar to their their beef cohorts, but you could tell, besides the color, you could tell, you know, that they were dairy, dairy calves. You know, what they're finding is it's not just any beef bull. Um, yeah. The first couple of rounds that they thought about 
well, we'll just throw an Angus bull in there or we'll throw a Hereford in there. Well, now they're starting to see that Simflex or Limflex breeds actually do better in this whole breeding situation. Um, you're looking for easy calving scores. You're looking for really good gain, um, marbling scores. Uh, there's a lot, of, there's a whole uh, list of things that you need to look for when you're contemplating this as a dairyman. So, um, like I said, it's, it's kind of fascinating. Just one more way we're adding value to our cattle. Well, folks, uh, Lacey Newland had a story on the inside. Consumers are key to our beef industry recovery. At the recent virtual cattle U event, Danette Amstein of Myden Marketing discussed consumer beef purchasing trends before and after COVID-19. And we've had a chat with, with Danette on here before, haven't we, Kayleen? Yep. And Danette said that there are two conflicting trends in the beef industry right now that are racing towards each other. One is the economic downturn, which is causing consumers to become extremely price sensitive. She said, quote, many, many consumers have experienced a decrease in their income since March. And in fact, 25% are still experiencing decreases in their household and only 7% have seen their income grow up, end quote. Um, she says, she continues that because everyone wants to stay well, they are still pay paying more attention to what they eat and the quality of their food. And so you see um, both ends of the spectrum are coming together and colliding at a very unique intersection um, as we watch what consumers are thinking and doing with meat. Amstein said that since COVID-19 uh, started in March, 51% of shoppers are preparing 50 to 90% of their meals at home. And just over half of consumers are now buying and freezing more meat than normal. And 61% of consumers are exper experimenting with new cooking techniques to keep their food more exciting and 45% are purchasing a wider variety of meat cuts. So we're, we're, we just saw in the course of three or four months, Kayleen, a complete break, like, you know, slamming on the brakes and a, and a U-turn in consumers that have, that for one reason or another needed to cook at home, less dining out, and they're starting to rediscover the joys of cooking with meat. Good for them. Yeah. Although I'm very frustrated with having to cook at home. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and one thing that she did bring up in that, in that presentation was there are people that have never frozen meat. They have no idea what a quarter or a half of beef looks like or what, how much freezer space, you know, that that's going to take up. And so there are a lot of opportunities now for cattlemen to really bring out a good, a, a message for, to consumers that is actually going to stick. You know, now you do have people that are shopping and so go to where they're shopping. Um, I thought it was interesting, Kayleen, in that presentation too. She also talked about how the marketing of meat to consumers um, from our checkoffs is going to have to do a 180 because you can't just hand out um, recipes in a store People are, are spending less time in the store. They're ordering online. You and I have talked about that. They're having it delivered to their house. How do you reach them? It's yeah. going to be interesting. We're going to have to put some thought into it. And if anybody out there knows what to do with pork neck bones, you might want to let me know because I got two packages of those that came back with the hog and I don't know what I want to do with them or if I want to even, even keep them. <laughs> <laughs> what? Is, I don't know what, 
I've never had them send that back. I don't know why they sent that back. Pinterest <laughs> that thing, man. Pinterest it. I'm afraid to. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta say, my sister is a prime example of somebody that's taking on this whole, um, we'll just fill the freezer up with beef. My older sister, she grew up in the same household I did. And so she and my folks actually bought a steer at a 4-H auction up in Montana. And Joni was able to find a, a spot at a local processor, a local packer, to go and, and get this thing processed. And she dials me up and she says, what do I want him to cut it into? I know we need hamburger, but what else? <laughs> and after I stopped laughing... <laughs> Because here's my older sister who knows everything. Honestly, she does. Um, she's asking me for this advice and said, just ask the butcher what he recommends. <laughs> Steak and roast and hamburger. <laughs> but she's an example of somebody that, it, you know, wanted to buy local, wanted to support 4-H, wanted to do their part. And, um, I, you know, it's a good experience. And I think she's going to replicate, she's going to repeat it. I think you're going to see a lot more people repeating that experience, Kayleen. Yeah, I think so too. So book those spots for next year's pigs now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the opinions and editorials page, editor Dave Bergmeier has a column this week, farm safety is collective effort starting with each individual. And there's another letter to the editor from Robert McKnight Jr., a rancher and president of the Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association titled Cow-Calf Producers Need Better Price Discovery. Contributor David Murray has a few stories again this week with topics ranging from grain movement, fall crop outlook, and new carbon farming. And Lacey has a couple of other stories in this issue, both from Cattle U and our Alfalfa U. And I have a story about the Red Hills Rancher and how his range management plan is unconventional but successful. I also have another story from the Cattle Feeding Forum's virtual event showcasing Randy Block's outlook. And Jenny had her Common Ground column this week, Opportunity is Knocking. You want to tell us a little bit about how you came up with this column? So you know how I always like to look at the opportunity that challenges provide us, right? Because, yeah. you know, I was raised, don't come to me with a problem if you don't have three solutions for it. And I got to thinking, you know, we have had to face a lot of challenges in the last couple of months. Just nothing is easy and we have to figure out different ways to do things. And it, it's just a, a train wreck out there. But we also have figured out ways to do stuff that we were pressured into. And there's some good about it. Um, think about how many of us have had Zoom calls with our grandparents that we wouldn't have done before had we not been forced to do that. And that was our only way to contact them. Um, there's a lot of other examples out there of if you think and adapt, maybe you can find a better way. Maybe this forced us into a better way or at least a different way that reaches more people. Um, I'm always going to be the, the glass is three quarters full kind of girl and not one quarter empty. So here's open that people look at stuff and think about, okay, there's some opportunity. You know, my dad liked to say, um, you know, you have a time to cry. Now there's a time to try. So this is our time to try. Yep. And you can read Jenny's column and more on the variety of ag issues facing farmers and ranchers in the Print High Plains Journal 
or look for it online anytime at www.hpj.com. And folks, if you have a response to something you've read or you've heard, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. We really want to hear from you. caught up with Richard Fordyce of the Farm Service Agency on the new changes for the second installment of the CFAP program, which is part of the coronavirus uh, food aid package that is helping the farmers and ranchers. And he gave me some specifics on where farmers and ranchers should go to look for more information, how they can sign up, and really a lot of good information in about 10 minutes. This is Kayleen Scott here with HPJ Talk, and I have Richard Fordyce here from the Farm Service Agency. How are you doing today, Richard? Doing great. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about the CFAP program that has been renewed, I believe, September 17th is when they expanded it. Actually, the, the sign-up began this, this past Monday, the 21st mm-hmm. um, of September. Uh, the announcement, I think, the president actually announced this program. Um, he was in Wisconsin. Um, and I think you are correct. I think that was on the evening of the 17th um, that he made that announcement um, of the CFAP 2 program. But sign-up did begin um, on September 21st. Okay. Now, in your own words, tell me about what the program is and what it does and who it's for. Uh, we're calling it CFAP 2 and CFAP 1. Uh, I know a lot of your listeners will um, will recognize CFAP 1. Um, that was a that was a program that we rolled out. I think I think sign up began on May 26th for that program, and that was that came to us from legislation that was passed by Congress uh, that funded nine and a half billion dollars for agricultural producers that were impacted by the coronavirus. Um, and then we were able to pull about six and a half billion dollars out of CCC to make a 16 billion dollar program uh, for the CFAP one program. CFAP 2 is built on, kind of built the CFAP 1 program. In some ways it's similar, in some ways it's different, but it still is addressing the losses to agricultural producers affected by, uh, by the coronavirus. Um, and so uh, CFAP 2 basically has three categories. Um, the first one is our sales commodities, and this would include specialty crops, um, tobacco, aquaculture, um, and it's going to use a sales-based approach where we're going to look at the producer's 2019 sales of commodities grown or commodities raised by those producers. So what needs, what needs to be in there are the sales of those commodities prior to any value added to them. So prior to any processing, prior to any, you know, additional packaging or whatnot. Um, and we're going to pay, there's, there's five gradations in the sales commodities category, um, but we're going to pay basically around 10% um, of what the 2019 sales were. We're going to pay that to those producers that are in the, that have commodities in the sales commodities category. The second one is price trigger, and so that's where that's where we find our row crops, major livestock um, species, and dairy. So, so corn, soybeans, 
cattle, pigs, sheep, um, and dairy. Um, and those are kind of major commodities that had met or have met at least a minimum 5% price decline uh, from January through July. And so if it's row crops, um, we're going to take a look at that producer's uh, acreage report. So the 2020 acres, based on an acreage report that that producer would have made with FSA, we're going to use their annual production history, so their APH, so it's unique to that producer, uh, and multiply that times by a, by a rate. Livestock, it's it's an inventory number for market-ready uh, or market-potential cattle, so breeding stock are excluded. So if we're talking cattle, no bulls that have been exposed to a herd, um, no cows that have had a calf. So bred heifers, they're, they're, they're included. Young bulls that have not been exposed to a herd, they're included. And it's the total inventory number that a producer has times the payment rate per head. Um, it's, it's applied the same way for, for um, sheep, and it's applied the same way for pigs. And then dairy is based on uh, based on that dairy's production history um, that they're going to be that they're going to need to provide um, times the payment rate per hundredweight. And our final category are flat rate crops, and basically those are crops that either did not meet five percent price decline, or there was just not uh, data available to calculate that price decline, or potentially um, crops that have relatively small acreages. Um, you know, buckwheat is one, for example, that is in the flat rate row crop category. Um, you know, and the national uh, acreage of buckwheat is relatively small. So, so again, sales commodities, price trigger commodities, and flat rate row crops. And, you know, there's, um, there's a great resource for folks. Um, certainly their local county farm service agency office, you know, we're going to be able to offer uh, input and guidance. Um, as far as how the program works and, and so on and so forth. But we also have a website, farmers.gov forward slash CFAP. Um, and there are a lot of questions, a lot of uh, FAQs, so frequently asked questions on there, um, and a lot of information around the CFAP 2 program um, at, at farmers.gov forward slash CFAP. Okay. Now, why is it important for farmers and ranchers to take advantage of this program and sign up? Well, I think, you know, it, you know, as we look across agriculture across the country, um, obviously a lot of impact, um, you know, based on, based on the coronavirus, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a corn producer, a cattle producer, especially crop producer, um, you know, that have, that, that have been impacted, um, their crop, um, and their market have been impacted. So, you know, obviously we would encourage producers to take a look at the program. Um, you know, it, it does have payment limitations, um, uh, just like the CFAP 1 program, but the CFAP 2 program is a standalone program. So it has its own payment limitations. So whatever you got paid in CFAP 1 has no effect and no bearing on your payment limit for CFAP 2. So again, it's a, sta- it's a standalone payment limit. Um, and we, um, you know, we would just encourage folks to take a look at it. There, it, it, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it, it is, it's USDA, it's the president, it's the secretary's attempt um, to offer some assistance to agricultural producers that have been affected um, by uh, by coronavirus, um, uh, the pandemic. And again, just urge folks to take a look at it and see if it's something that um, is going to be beneficial to them. I think they're going to find that it is. It's 
participate. My husband and I, we applied for the first one and got some funds. We have a small cow-calf herd. Can we apply this for this, the CFAP2, or is that something that since we applied for the first one, how does that work as far as applying again? Or? Yep. That, that's, a gr- that's a great question. So any anybody who applied for CFAP1, um, and, it's, I mean, you have the same commodities that you had that you applied for in CFAP1, um, you know, if you – you absolutely can apply for CFAP2. The fact that you applied in the first program has no bearing on, on your eligibility for the second program. And again, you know, for producers that hit that payment limit in CFAP1, uh, CFAP2 has its own payment limit. So, so that is decoupled, um, from the first, from the first program. Okay. Also, you know, because we've added some commodities, you know, you may be a cow-calf producer, you may grow something else um, that maybe wasn't included in the first program. So you might, it's, it's a potential that, you know, additional commodities that you are producing are included in this second program. I noticed they did add a bunch of the other commodities, as you know, the ones that I saw were smaller, like you mentioned before, smaller kind of crops that aren't covering a large acreage. Why, why did they go ahead and include that in this one? So I think, you know, what, what, the, what the rationale behind that was, well, in the first one, we, um, you know, we had access to uh, an enormous amount of data. So anything with a price, any, any crop with a price reporting structure, you know, obviously um, commodities that are traded either on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange or the Chicago Board of Trade, we had that information. Um, Anything that had any kind of a price reporting structure, so maybe even maybe even crops that were reported through ag- the agricultural marketing service. And so we, you know, we utilized that data. We also utilized data uh, that we so- that we solicited from the public. Um, and so we were able to we were able to um, include commodities that we could determine had at least a five percent price decline. So in CFAP two, we took a little broader view of. Uh, of things that were included in, um, you know, in the program. And so, as you mentioned, some of those crops that had relatively small acreages, obviously probably impacted, um, you know, the price was impacted due to coronavirus, but we just, you know, because of the smaller acreage or because of maybe some other, um, you know, situations, uh, couldn't determine a 5% price decline, but also, you know, feeling very strongly that they were impacted, so that's why they were included. Um, included as well. Okay. Richard, we've covered a lot of ground in, in the short time that we've been talking. Is there anything else you think people need to know? Well, I would just encourage folks to take a look at the program. Again, utilize utilize that resource, farmers.gov forward slash CFAP. Contact your local farm service agency office. You know, those folks are going to be um, going to be that local expert there at, at the county level. And I want to say just a huge thanks um, to our staff at FSA that are administering this program, you know, in those local county offices. And a huge, huge thank you to our producers that, you know, go out every day, work super hard, um, you know, providing the food, fuel, and fiber for this country and the world. And, and, and also just thanks to them for their patience as they, you know, as they work with, uh, work with our staff on this program and others you know, as we all work together to kind of get through this together. So um, just thanks to thanks to our producers, thanks to our staff um, that do a great job every day working on behalf of American Agriculture. 
absolutely. I know that the staff works extra hard to make sure that everybody knows what they need to know as far as these programs go. They do. They do. They do an awesome job. Well, thanks for chatting with me today, Richard. It was good to hear the programs moving forward, and it's going to be available for those who need it. Absolutely. Now, it's very good to visit with you as well, and I hope you have a great rest of the day. Same to you. Your grain market prices from Dodd City's Pride Egg Resources on September 15th, corn was up at $3.71, wheat was down at $4.38, milo was up at $4.11, and soybeans were up at $8.87. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters on our website, www.hpj.com slash signup. Simply select the topics that interest you and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. Well, be sure to watch for our soybean added value issue of High Plains Journal in your mailboxes September 28th with a story from Kayleen. And look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Thanks again to Alta Seeds for sponsoring this week's episode. Alta debuted its new iGrowth sorghum line in its first ever Sorghum Frontiers virtual field day. iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide-tolerant sorghum that's commercially available in the U.S. market, enabling pre- or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to sign up to catch the second installment of Sorghum Frontiers at hpj.com slash sorghumfrontiers to learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again, folks, for riding along with us as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on both ends of my day.